Okay, we'll get everybody in. We'll get started tonight. Welcome to session number 11. Make sure everybody understands there are 13 sessions, not 12, 13. We're doing an extra one this semester. And uh, we're in chapter 25 of the story. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this gorgeous day we have outside for the weather and the spring and changing. And uh, we thank you, Lord, for this hope that we have because your word has shown us the past, present, and future. We even know what's coming. So, Lord, open our minds to understand the scriptures tonight that we might know you, the one true God in Jesus whom you have sent. In his name we pray. Amen. I hope your experience in these past 10 sessions has shown you this. The Bible is one story. It's one single story. It's 66 books, multiple authors over a long period of years, but it's telling the same story. John the Baptist came and they asked him if he was a prophet. We talked about this last week. Are you Elijah? Are you the Messiah? Who are you? John the Baptist, who are you? In this first scene tonight, Jesus will ask who people say that he is. And the answer is remarkable. What's really remarkable is what comes from this simple question. Jesus is going to say, and it's going to formulate this session, first session tonight. Who do people say that I am? Who, who do you think I am? Mark 8, 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. I want to say something. In June, just a little while, uh, we've got about 45 people from church here going to Israel. One of our stops will be in Caesarea Philippi, okay? So we'll ask people in Caesarea Philippi to, uh, we'll ask them some questions while we're over there. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? Now, I want you to notice people. It's a broad question. They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others say you're one of the prophets. But what about you? What about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. This scene begins, begins with Jesus asking a broad question, and it's about the people as a whole, all the community. What are they saying? Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, prophet. And then Jesus turns the broad question into a narrow and personal question. Now he says, who do you, not the people, not the crowds, who do you say that I am? This is the heart of the story of God, this question. This question is the heart of the story of God. And how we answer it will be, will determine the final story of each person on earth. Do, do you know that? How you answer this question will determine your eternity. Who do you say that he is? It's that simple. Jesus doesn't stop with the acknowledgement of his title as Messiah. He continues by announcing the ultimate upper story plan of God. So who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. Don't tell anyone. It's not time. It's not that he doesn't want them eventually to know. Right now, he doesn't want them to know. It'll become later. So the next verse, verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Does that scripture sound familiar? Because it was the centerpiece for my Easter series. And if you think I worked that out, you'd be crazy because I did not. And this entire next section also was in the Easter series, and it gives me cold chills because it happens all the time. It just happens all the time. It's one of those confirmations that the Holy Spirit is still leading and directing us through his word, navigating it in some kind of a sequence. So he's starting to, so what's the first thing? Who do people say that I am? What's the second thing? Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. And once he says you're the Christ, he then starts to reveal the mission of the Christ. 
What is it? Next verse. He began to teach them what? Not just his identity. That has already come out. His identity. He's the the Christ. He's the Jewish Messiah. But then he says that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and that he's going to be killed and on the third day he's going to rise from the dead. Now, do you think this statement of Jesus kind of took the celebration out of the moment? So everybody's excited. You're the Messiah? Yeah, and I'm going to die. They're going to kill me in Jerusalem. Have a nice day. I mean, think about the the deflation of the moment that when he announces the purpose of the Messiah. Peter thought so. He thought this this was, um, Peter thought this is a bad idea, that you need a new mission. You need a new purpose. This one's not it. So he thought he would straighten Jesus out. Verse 32, he spoke plainly about this, Jesus. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. And he said, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Peter, in this scene, just think about it. He he is, um, one of the other gospels says what to Peter? Blessed are you, Peter, for for, um, man did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. So, Peter's had a God moment that God has revealed to him the Messiahship of Christ. So in this high, he's about to have a low. And what's the low? Get behind me, Satan. He's so excited about Jesus' announcement as Messiah, and I can only imagine that he thinks he's standing next to King David's replacement. So what do you think they thought Messiah was going to do? Come be uh, spit upon rejected by the elders, crucified and buried? No, that's not what they thought at all. So he thinks King David's replacement has showed up and we're going to run these Romans out of town and there's going to be an Israel kingdom on the earth. He'd be wrong. He was wrong. Why? Listen carefully. Peter is stuck in the lower story. He can only see what men see. It's the way we all think because we live in the lower story. If you learn anything from this series, you learn that there's an upper story of God and a lower story where it plays out. And we don't always understand why it's playing out the way it does. Do you think Peter got it? Peter didn't get it. Peter, Peter's think, he's rebuking Jesus for the plan that brought Jesus to the earth. The Son of Man must suffer and die. Why? or all of us are lost. If he doesn't suffer and die, then all of us, including Peter, are lost. This is the plan. This isn't the secondary plan. This is the plan. Satan will oppose this plan of God and will convince many men and women to join him in opposition. And thus, Jesus' response to Peter is calling him Satan. Because Satan, Peter just joined the adversary's plan and said, no cross, no death, no resurrection. Well, that's what Satan wants. No cross, no death, no resurrection. And then if that happens, none of us will rise either. We'll all just get dead. Jesus will then explain the painful reality of becoming a follower of Christ. The Gospel of Mark has this incredible sequence of clarity. Look at the painful reality of what we need to do to join him. It's not what Peter's doing, is it? Get behind me, Peter. Here's what we need to do. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. You see, Peter didn't want Jesus to take the cross. No, he rebuked him. But Jesus says, you got to, anyone, not just Peter, anyone, if you want to come after me, you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up a cross and follow me. And here's why. For whoever wants to save his life, this is about saving people's lives, right? Whoever wants to save his life, you got to lose your life. It's this paradox, right? 
If you want to save your life, you've got to lose your life. What's losing your life in this scene? Take up a cross. What do you think you're going to do with the cross? It's not jewelry, right? You're going to die. You gotta, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But whoever loses his life, that's take up the cross. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel, here it is, I'm going to hold it up. For me, the, the name, and for me, the word. Does anybody see it? For me and the gospel, the name and the word. In the letter to the church in Philadelphia, it's the two things the church didn't deny. And because they didn't deny the name and the word, what did he say? I will protect you from the great time of testing that's going to come upon the whole earth. You ought to memorize that one. It's a big one. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And what good is it if the man gained the whole world and you forfeit your soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, do you see it again? There it is again. The person, the name, and the words, the name and the word. What's under attack in the American culture? The name and the word. The name and the word. What's under attack? Those two. The very thing some churches are letting go of. And what did he say? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. So let's summarize. To, to follow Jesus, you must deny yourself, take up a cross. Death to self. Why is it hard? Nobody wants to die to self. You know what it is? It's an international language. Uh, you can go anywhere in the world, and this means the same thing. What's it mean? Surrender. That's how you come. You must surrender yourself to Christ. It's death to self. If you try to save or preserve your life with your own plan, with your own clever plan, what's Peter thinking? Peter's rebuking Jesus. That's Peter's plan. If you try to save your life with your own plan, you're going to lose your life in the process. So here's the counsel. Value your soul. And this is right now, I'm telling everybody, whatever you value in world right now, whatever you think is valuable, Number one, number one, value your soul. Your soul has great value to God. You should have great value yourself in your soul. Value your soul. Above all else, value your soul. And why do I want to make a big deal? Because value your soul more than your body. A lot of people spend a lot of energy taking care of their body, and that's great. Exercise, eat right, do whatever you want to do. But I'm going to tell you what. If you take good care of your body and you neglect your soul, you're going to die the eternal death. Because your body's going to die anyway. Anyway. And a lot of people have this idea. They want to take care of their body, and they neglect their soul. Value your soul. It's important. It's the most important because it's you. You are not skin. You are a soul. The soul is you. You're taking care of something they're going to throw away. Take care of that which will last forever. That's you, your soul. Next point, don't be embarrassed or ashamed of Jesus, his words, his identity, or his plan in the last days. But they're going to laugh at me when I say, I'm waiting for somebody to come in the sky to get me. Okay, they can laugh while I go up in the air. And when somebody does laugh at me for that, you know what I say? And what was your plan? Okay, you laughed at my plan. Okay, I'm with you. What was your plan? Oh, uh, you don't have a plan. You're going to die. You're going to die and they're going to put you in the ground and what's your plan these last days you know what he said he says that this adulterous and sinful generation Jesus calls this the church age the time between the cross and the 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 coming for the bride an adulterous and sinful generation adulterous what 
Have you ever thought of the simplicity of this word? Adultery is what? Unfaithfulness. It's to be unfaithful. To what? The two things he's making a point of. The name and the word. The church was called to be faithful to the name. There's no other name under heaven whereby we can be saved. And the word. This is the word of God. Be faithful. Don't be a cheater. Don't have an affair with the world and abandon this. You're unfaithful. You're an adulteress. An adulterer. Words matter. If you shrink back, Jesus says you'll be rejected when the king comes in glory to do what you thought he was going to do the first time. I want to make sure you get that. Jesus says if you shrink back from the name and the word, then you're going to be rejected when the king comes to do what Peter thought he was going to do the first time he came, which was what? Be the king of Israel and take over the earth. He is going to be the king of Israel and take over the earth for those who are faithful. As Jesus moves from this scene to Jerusalem and the Feast of Tabernacles, the question, people, who do, I, who do people say I am, is still the same. Now, here's something I want to make an announcement to this group. Um, I have decided, in fact, I've already started working on it, this next semester, which will start August 30th of 2023. Uh, it'll be 12 weeks, and it is called The Appointed Times. And if you want to know what that is, uh, come to the root session starting on August 30th. No, I'm not going to do that. that that's, not, that's not fair. What I'm going to do is I have started a study on all the Jewish feasts. It'll start with um, the Sabbath. It'll go to the Passover. It'll go to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It'll go to the Feast of Weeks. It'll go to, it'll, it'll, over all the Jewish feasts and Jesus in the Jewish feast. Uh, it'll be 12 weeks. Um, I'm excited about it. I'm excited about it because I have finished five of them. And uh, it's really good. So I'm not saying that because of me. I'm saying that because God's faithful to his word. And um, it's called the appointed times. And I'll tell you, it is powerful teaching. Everything reveals Jesus. Everything reveals Jesus. So there's your promotion for August. If we're here August 30th, we will have this session. If not, if any of you are still here and I'm gone at that point, good luck. So you can have my notes. John 7, 11. Now at the feast, so see how the feast play into all this? Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him, Jesus, and asking, where is that man? Among the crowds there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he deceives the people. That's kind of funny. This one guy says he's a good man. This guy says he's a liar. He can't be both. But no one would say anything publicly about him because they were afraid the Jews, the leadership, would come and kick him out of the synagogue just for mentioning his name. So, um, Good man or deceiver? <laughs> Some are even afraid to guess. And then he arrives. Verse 14. Not until halfway through the feast, this is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, by the way, did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? I love that. Because everybody in that day had a rabbi. They had a teacher that taught them. Jesus didn't have a rabbi. He is the rabbi. He doesn't need a teacher. And they noticed that, and it's a point. They make the point. How did this man get such learning without having studied? And Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. Now, what do you think they're getting? You know, this is, they're going to start to get confused and nervous. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. So he what's he starting to do? He's starting to reveal his sonship. He's starting to reveal his messiahship. He's starting to let the cat out of the bag. He's starting to reveal, this is who you are? How are they going to deal with that? 
Did that sentence convince them or did it just make them mad? Most of them, it just made them mad. John 7, verse 20. You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Why? Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said that, that people were already coming for him. They call Jesus demon-possessed. How, how extreme is that position? Demon-possessed? Jesus begins teaching them about the law of Moses and Jewish circumcision and reveals to the Jews how they have never lived up to the standard of the law. They don't realize it. And by the way, I made two terrible sentence structures in there. I must have skipped that sentence when I proofed it. They don't realize it, but everyone is deciding how they will answer that incredible question. What question? In this scene, listen carefully. It's the center point of the night's, um, this particular chapter. Who do people say that I am? Well, one group already said he's a liar. Another group said he's a good man. You see the difference between the two positions? You're a liar? No, you're a good man. It's a centerpiece. Let's go to verse 25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Well, why don't they arrest him if they're after him? By the way, if you look at the context, the Jewish people had already told everybody, he's wanted. They're, they're going to arrest him. They're looking for him. But he's in public. Why didn't they go get him then? Think about it. By the way, that's a point that's coming. Have the authorities really concluded that he's the Christ? What's all those questions for? What's, what's all the questions? Who is he? Who do, who do you say I am? You see, they're pondering it. It's, it's the question. It's the question. But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. That's what they think. There it is. The question, is he the Christ? The very big life and death question. The Jewish leaders have already concluded he is not. Now, this is important. If you're going to understand what happens next, they have already, the Jewish leaders, and I, I'm not all of them, Nicodemus, jo Joseph of Arimathea, there's some that have not gone over to the dark side. But as a whole, they've already concluded that he is not the Messiah. So what's their job? We must stop him. Jesus won't let it go. He's going to reveal himself as the Messiah. The time has come. Verse 28. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. Uh-oh, he's going into dangerous territory. I am not here on my own. Now, if you're, if you're a Jewish leader and you already concluded he's not the Messiah, what is he? He's a blasphemer. He, he can't be both. Right? I'm not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know me, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. You know what that means? Even if they'd have wanted to, they couldn't. There was a supernatural protection around him. Still, many in the crowd put their faith in him. There you go. Some are getting it. And they said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? They try to seize him, but there's no power on earth that can stop the upper story plan of God. The upper story plan of God is coming down to the lower story. And the lower story people are trying to stop it. Peter's trying to stop it. Now the Jews are trying to stop it. You can't stop it. You'll just get run over. You can't stop it. This is important. Church, it's happening now. It's happening right now. There are events on the earth happening right now. It's an upper story coming down to the lower story. Certain events are happening in the world right now. You can't stop them. You can't stop them. Some things are going to happen. What you have to have is the Holy Spirit to know which ones that you, you go along with and which ones you get away from. In John 
chapter 8, Jesus has moved to the Mount of Olives and begins to reveal his divine nature. You see how he's increasingly revealing his Messiahship? Verse 12, when John spoke, excuse me, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. You can't just proclaim you're somebody by yourself. Somebody else would have to validate that. It's at this point that the argument moves to Abraham. And who are the true children of God? Now, Jesus is claiming to be the son of God. Abraham's descendants are called the children of God. The son of God is a singular. The children of God are a plural. There are many children of God, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and that, that line. But the son of God is a singular concept. The only begotten son of God. So Jesus is not proclaiming to be the plural. He's proclaiming to be the singular the only son of God to bring many children to God, brothers and sisters, okay? But he's the only begotten. The Jews are so angry that they actually accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed. It's at this point that Jesus reveals what you call the whopper. And I'm not talking about that hamburger at Burger King. He says this, he's the I am. That to the Jewish people, it's the whopper. Because you think they don't know who I am is? They know. John 8, 52. Um, by the way, this is one of my favorite teaching portions of the Gospel of John. Right here. Uh, I did an entire series years ago on I am. Based upon this, these few verses. I think it was seven sermons long. One of these days, I'm going to bring it back out and do it again. At this, the Jews exclaimed, Now we know you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you, Jesus, say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died. By the way, Abraham's 2,000 years before Christ. Y'all with me? 2,000 years. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? There's the question. That's it. That's the question. Do you see this entire thing is about the identity. Who are you? Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who do you think you are? And Jesus, da, 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 he's going to answer them straight up. No riddles. He says this, verse 54. If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. Ouch, that hurt. That one hurt. He didn't make any friends with that one. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham. Now, by the way, they revered Abraham. They revered Moses. They revered David. They didn't like John the Baptist much. But those other guys they liked, okay? He says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw my day and was glad. 2,000 years between them. You're not even 50 years old, the Jews said. How? And you've seen Abraham? Here it comes. I tell you the truth. Jesus answered before Abraham was born. I am. Uh-oh. He's crossed the red line. Do you see it? I am. And if you don't think they got it, look at the next sentence. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. I am. Before Abraham was born. That's 2,000 years. I am. 
Stones won't stop the I am. It's futile. That question that we began with tonight rings in my ears as I write this. Who do you say that I am? Let's move to one last scene in this chapter. The Passover is about to begin and many make their journey to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast that remembers the time of Moses and the 400 years of Egyptian bondage. The feast is centered on what? The blood of the lamb that protected the Hebrews from death. So they took the blood of the lamb back in Moses' day, put it over the doorway. And if the doorway has the blood and and the blood of the lamb would make death pass over you. Okay? As God revealed his deliverance in the last and final plague of Egypt. So the blood of the lamb is deliverance from bondage to freedom. Now you got to get this. Well, it's the last plague. This one will break the bondage of Egypt. Egypt is a picture of sin. It breaks the bondage of sin. The blood of the lamb breaks the bondage of sin and sets you free so you can get to the promised land. See it? It's all in there. Now think about this for a moment. The lamb of God. Now that's, that's Moses. Now we're back at Passover. The Lamb of God is about to walk into Jerusalem as the Jewish Passover is about to begin. What a coincidence. Y'all got to get this. Jesus is walking, of all the times of the year that he's going to walk into Jerusalem, why is he walking into Jerusalem as the Passover is about to begin? He is the Passover. It's him. He's the Lamb of God that makes death pass over your house, breaks the bondage of your sin, and allows you to make it to the promised land. Do you see it? He's everywhere. Now let's go back to John the Baptist as he introduces the Messiah and connect the dots. John 1, 29, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why in the world would this guy with locust breath and camel's hair call this man the Lamb of God? Because he knows. He's the Passover. Death will pass over anyone who has him over their lives. Sin is the cause of death, right? Sin equals, it's, a, it's an equation. Sin equals death. So death was avoided in Egypt by the blood of the lamb over the doors of the houses. Okay? Death was avoided in that moment by the blood of the lamb over their houses. Here comes Jesus into Jerusalem to fix, not temporarily, because all those Hebrews eventually did die. They just didn't die that night at Passover. But here comes Jesus into Jerusalem to fix once and for all the cause of death. The cause itself. What, what, what's he going to fix? Sin. If you could fix sin, you would fix death. If sin equals death, what would happen to the equation if you removed sin? You would remove death. Wow. The Lamb of God is about to take away the sins of the world by laying down His life on the cross, breaking our chains and our bondage forever. And the question didn't ever change. Who do you say I am? Matthew 21. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes. Notice he's got a king analogy. See your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on a foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, 
placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees, spread them on the road. The crowd that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the Baruch Abba Shemadonai. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? It's always the same question. Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Who is this? Each person on earth is going to have to answer the question. I won't answer for you and you won't answer for me, but everybody's going to answer the question. I might have an influence on you. You might have an influence on me, but on the last day, it won't be your choice. It'll be my choice. Who does Terry Cooper say he is? I say he's the Messiah, the Son of God. I hope that's what you say. Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people, this is the broad application, say the son of man is? Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, some Jeremiah and the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. And what is the rock? Is the rock Peter, or is the rock the confession of Peter? The Catholic Church believes the rock is a man named Peter. The Protestant church believes the rock is the confession of Peter, not Peter. Big difference. So what came out of Peter's mouth? You are the Christ. It answers the question, who do people, who do you say I am? It's the question of salvation. Who is he? Whoa. Chapter 26. I could keep going on that one, by the way. The hour of darkness. 25 chapters, 10 and a half root sessions leading up to this event. The cross, the death of the Messiah. It is the ultimate contrast between God's upper story plan and man's lower story plan. In the lower story, there is sin, hatred, and darkness. In the upper story, that same sin spelled out forgiveness, love, and light. How is it possible? To the world, the death of Jesus was his ending. To God, the death of his only son was the fulfillment of the promised plan in Genesis 3. What is Genesis 3? And the woman's seed will crush the serpent's head. To get us back. He is finished. When Jesus says he is finished, that's the perspective of the lost world. He's finished. It's over. It is finished. That's the perspective of all who will believe and call upon his name. It's not like this is happening without the full knowledge of Jesus. He knows. He intentionally walks toward the cross to finish the perfect, perfect plan of God to redeem the lost world of man. Notice the phrase, Jesus knows. Now, he's fully man and he's fully God. And I know that's hard to comprehend, okay? He's fully man, he's fully God. What did Jesus know about the cross when he went into Jerusalem? He knows. When did he know? I don't know exactly when he knew. I know this. He knows in this scene. John 13, 1. It was just before the Passover feast and Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. He knows. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. So he knows he's about to go home to the Father. So before he leaves, he's going to show his disciples the full extent of his love because he knows. How will the Son of God show the full extent of his love as he prepares to die? Notice again, Jesus knew. Verse 2. The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, 
son of Simon, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew. What's he know this time? He knows that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. He knows. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What does it mean? What just happened? The full extent of his love is displayed. What does this scene mean? And why this and why now? Jesus is introducing the heart of God. He's he's showing his disciples the heart of God. It's almost more than I can comprehend. It's almost more than they could comprehend. Why this? Why now? Knowing what's about to happen. He knows he's from God and he knows he's going to God. And he knows he's going to die. And he takes those things and starts washing feet. Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Now let me ask you a question. How should the church treat each other? That's it. Is there anybody in the body of Christ that you should look at, look down at in any way, shape, or form for anything, anytime, any application? No. And by the way, was Judas in the group? A lot of people believe he is. He has not yet left the table. He is still there. I believe he's still there. He's still going to have his feet washed. He's still going to have his... Jesus is going to wash the feet of his betrayer. Yes, he dies for everyone. Let that sink in. The darkest hour in the history of man is approaching. What does he do? He washes dirty, stinking feet. And what does that tell you about preparing to encounter the darkness? So let's take a personal application. He's about to encounter the darkness of Satan himself, right? He is. He's going to grieve in the Garden of Gethsemane. Grieve. He's going to encounter the darkness. I'm going to show you. So how do you you prepare to encounter the darkness? This is how he did it. He washed feet. He humbled himself. What would the darkness look like? The spirit of Antichrist is real. Spirits are real. So what does the darkness that Jesus was about to encounter look like? What is the darkness that you and I are about to encounter? What does it look like? Do you recognize it? Let's go to John 13 too. The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot son of Simon, to betray Jesus. He's been prompted. Verse 27, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. Darkness has entered the skin of a man. Now there's nobody, including me, in this room that can comprehend The power of a spiritual being being able to enter into a man in that scene. But he did. And I told you in this Easter series, he didn't just come for Judas. He didn't just come for Peter. He came for the bunch of them. And he wanted to come for Jesus. It's a spiritual darkness. Verse 27. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy 
what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As some as Judas had, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Now this is important. It's night. We're walking in, spiritually and physically walking into the darkness. Nighttime and darkness. Notice the wording from the scene that evening in the garden of, as the soldiers come for him. They're in the darkness. Does the darkness matter? Is there a spiritual darkness? Yes. What do you do when you know you're going to have to approach the spiritual darkness? Let's go to verse 52. Jesus said to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him. They're coming into the garden trying to find him. Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts. But that's daytime. Every day I was there at the temple courts, and you did not lay a hand on me. Why does he bring this up? But this is your hour when darkness reigns. At this moment, the lower story is being filled with darkness and the power of darkness. Jesus, in his final hours of freedom, takes three men with him into, the, into a time of intense prayer and anguish, deeper into the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 36, then Jesus went with his disciples to the place called Gethsemane. He said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Let that sink in. This is the Son of God. He knows. And even though he knows that he came from God and he's going to God, his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of dying. Light has encountered darkness. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, Father, my Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he turned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? I often think of that sentence to the church while we wait for Messiah. Could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Couldn't for one season you guys hang on while I was driving out the darkness? Could you not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body or the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and he prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? The hour, look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. When Peter, when Peter tries in the next scene, he tries to stop the darkness. This is why I mentioned something earlier about some events to us look like we need to stop them. This event to Peter looks like something we need to stop this. And Peter tries to stop the darkness. And in the moment of trying to stop the darkness encountering the light, he finds himself in opposition to the upper story plan of God. He's in direct opposition to God in this moment. This has to happen. It's why he came. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Put the sword away. Peter, you're a problem. You're a problem. You're trying to stop the very reason I'm here. 
They take Jesus into the nighttime trial. Notice the events. Why are they doing it in dark? By the way, it was, it was illegal for them to have a nighttime trial. But they're doing, it's darkness. There's a spiritual darkness. There's a scene uh, in the Gospel of Luke. It's only included in one of the Gospels. It has always moved my soul. You, you'll see it when I hit it. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance, but when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there at the fire, in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and here comes the sentence that cuts my heart. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Whoa. He looked at him. What, what, what's the look on Peter's face? What's the look on Jesus' face? I told you. The rooster crowed, and they, they see each other. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today. You'll just know him three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Wept bitterly is probably the understatement of all humanity. He was broken. Do you think Peter ever forgot the look on Jesus' face in that moment? I don't. The disappointment, but the love. I'm doing this for you, Peter. I'm doing this to save you, Peter. Satan asked to sift you as wheat. I'm going to do this to fix that, to take away Satan's power. That moment could have been his undoing. Did you ever think about that? But it became the foundation of his ultimate story. Peter was restored by Jesus after the resurrection. And though he never forgot his failure that night, he did not live in the failed past, but lived in the power of Christ that quite frankly changed the world. The six hours that changed all eternity has arrived. The light and the darkness are colliding. Verse 17. Carrying his own cross, he went on to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side of Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews. They had already determined he's not. But that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews, and Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said they divided my garments among them, casting lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, that'd be John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple John took her, Mary, into his home. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put a sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, he said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit.
From a lower story perspective, he is finished. From an upper story perspective, it is finished. Do you see the point? It looked like from God, this was the plan. On the earth, it looked like this is disaster, right? But it's the same event. I will always be amazed at the details of this extravagant plan of God to get mankind back. How God balances the free will of man in the lower story against the absolute unstoppable power of God in the upper story. Some things must happen, and they are unstoppable, such as the Old Testament prophecies. There's a lot of things that have to happen in the last days. You will not be able to stop them. Look again at the scene as the soldiers come to arrest Jesus at the garden. This is so important. When they finished praying, I'm going to go back to the garden. When he, Jesus, had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples, crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him. There it is again. He already knows everything. He knows all that's going to happen to him. Went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it's dark, right? It's dark. Facial recognition might be a little difficult. Who is it you're looking for? Who do you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he. He's not hiding. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, listen what happened. When Jesus, when his word came out of his mouth, the upper story power could not contain itself. They drew back and fell to the ground. That ought to be your sign to get out of there. They drew back. They fell to the ground at his voice. I am he. So again, he asked them, who is it that you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you, I am he. And Jesus answered, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. They drew back and fell to the ground. Let me ask you a question. We're wrapping up tonight. Why? They drew back, fell to the ground. Why? Why? In the midst of that scene, Jesus' attention is not on himself, but on letting the others go. What is it that happened in that scene that made them fall backwards. When light and darkness had collided, something happened. This supernatural power. And yet, in that moment, he allows the darkness to overtake him. He becomes, in the, in the, in the scene that's about to take place, he becomes the darkness. He becomes the darkness. What do you think it meant when he carried our sins on him? He becomes the darkness. He allows the darkness to envelop him. He's the light that could hold back. They fall down at his word. And yet he has to humble himself and allow the darkness of sin to come upon him as he goes to the cross. And he says what? Take me, but let them go. There's the gospel. You see it? Take me, let them go. That's us. That's us. Take me, let them go. None would be lost that are placed in his loving hands except Judas. Verse 12. While I was with them, Jesus said, I protected them and kept them safe by the name, by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so the scripture would be fulfilled. 
There is a day in the future when everyone is going to do something very similar to the soldiers that night in the garden. Do you know that? What happened that night? Without their knowledge, without their foreknowledge, those soldiers bowed before the king. They bowed before the king. Do you know what's going to happen again? It's prophesied, Philippians 2, 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. It's prophesied. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. Where do you think under the earth is? Everywhere they're going to bow to him. He's going to be the king. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Only God can turn darkness into light. It is his specialty. Let's go all the way back. We've gone from the beginning to the end. Let's go back to the beginning. Genesis 1-3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said what? Let there be light. And there was light. And it is good. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your son became sin so that we might be set free. We worship you in Jesus' name and amen. Thank you all.